Pope's trying to give presents to every kid in Watoto this year. In Uganda. That's beautiful. Where's Uganda? It's in Africa. Wait a minute. You don't think people might forget, do you? How are they gonna forget about the box they took? They took a box? What, they're not gonna fill the box? If they took a box, they gotta fill a box. What, they can't build a box? They can build a bear, they can't build a box? They gotta build the box. They took the box, they build the box. Can you imagine some kid watching his friends open presents and he ain't got no box? Oh, he's got a box. She's got a box. Sorry, Dinkle, you ain't got no box. That ain't right. My cinnamon example. We gotta make sure people fill those boxes. For Latoto. For Uganda. Hmm. I got an idea. It's go time. Yeah, I'm Sprinkle. This here's Dinkle. Are you Eric Mitchell of, uh... 1911 Oak Yeah. Did you take a box? Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Box? The kids in Uganda? Where's the box? I, uh, I took a box, yeah, but it's in my trunk. I haven't had time to shop for it yet. Hasn't had time to go shop for it. It's in his trunk. Let's sprinkle this cupcake. It sounds delish. You know I can hear you, right? How do you like being in the trunk? Go fill your box. That's true, we are doing uh, Christmas boxes for Watoto. How many of you have gotten a Christmas box for the kids in Uganda or Uganda? Awesome. Those with your hands not raised feel ashamed. You're bad people. Uh, we, have, uh, we have extra boxes from West Cary and Holly Springs. They should run out this service. They're at the front if you want to grab one. And you can return them anytime this week. The deadline is this Sunday, uh, but you can return them Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 at the office. So, All right, how's everybody doing? You excited to be here? All right. Any out-of-town guests just visiting for the first time? None? All right. See how it is? Cool. Um, my name is Chase Garden. I'm the pastor of adult learning here, and I leave worship from time to time and speak and do classes and small group material and stuff, and I'm super excited to be here this weekend. I taught Thanksgiving sermon, the Thanksgiving weekend sermon last year, and so my respect for Mike Lee has been growing and growing and growing, um, and the reason is when it comes to Thanksgiving and Christmas and Mother's Day and Father's Day and Easter, there's only so many sermons you can give. Uh, there's only so many ways you can tell the story. Um, and so as I was searching the scriptures, trying to figure out a way to do this Thanksgiving sermon again, I was literally blown away with 
um, the depth and uh, just the, the, the emotion of what Jesus Christ has given to us as Christ followers. And you see the commercials uh, during the Thanksgiving holidays and during Christmas that tell us you should be thankful for this. And our culture kind of tells us, you know, you should be thankful for family and friends and good times and 0% um, interest credit cards and all this stuff. But when you go to the Word of God, it's, it's just filled with all these amazing eternal blessings that we have in Christ that just have a way of, of changing our perspective. And so that's my hope at the end of this morning, at the end of this talk, that our perspectives will shift for a little bit and that all of us could just take the next 30, 40 minutes to, to kind of forget about the hectic uh, holiday schedule and all the traveling and all the Christmas lists and all the buying and, and all the, the plans that we have and just set that aside and just, and just look squarely at Jesus Christ for the next few minutes. And that that would just fill us with thankfulness and gratefulness that kind of overflows into action. So um, that's my hope and prayer. Uh, we have a lot of work to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 17 to begin with. And uh, we're going to turn over to 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15. So um, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Now it's important to know that the, in Luke 17 we're nearing the end of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so in just a few short chapters, Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross. And he knows this, so what Luke records here is very, very important. Um, so let's pick it up in verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Uh, now, we know, if, if you know Luke very well, in chapter 9, he shifts his focus of his ministry from Galilee, marching around that lake for a few years. He shifts that focus, and now he's focusing on Jerusalem, marching south towards the cross. Uh, and right now, he's at the borderland between Samaria and Galilee. So Galilee is in uh, the north, Samaria is in the south. He's kind of on the borderlands. And if you know anything about Jewish history, uh, the Jews and the Samaritans did not exactly get along. They absolutely hated one another. It was like Hatfield and McCoys. And the reason was, a few thousand years ago, the Samaritans had intermarried with Gentiles. And now they have their own temple. They have their own holy books. They have their own way of life. And so the Jews and the Samaritans just do not mingle whatsoever. And so Jesus is kind of in the borderlands, this odd region um, of Israel. And in verse 12 it says, As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. Now, this is cool. Uh, Jesus usually likes to teach with parables. Uh, he, he uses these stories that everyday men and women, children can understand about casting seed or garden plants or building your, ho your house upon a rock or the sand. And what we're going to see play out in the next few verses is a living, breathing, active parable. And so he, he's entering this village and he sees ten men who have leprosy that meet him. And now it's important that they're outside the village because in biblical days, leprosy was a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, once you were diagnosed with leprosy, it was considered incurable, and once you were diagnosed, you were kind of removed from society. You were quarantined from the rest of society. And it wasn't because the, the Jews really understood the whole germ theory of communicable diseases, but they figured out pretty quick that if you have one sick person and ten healthy people and you put them together, you're going to have a lot more sick people pretty soon. And so um, the lepers were quarantined from society. When they walked through city streets, they had to raise their hand and say, unclean, I'm unclean, keep your distance. Um, they weren't allowed to go into restaurants, weren't allowed to live with their family members. They, they relied on the mercy and compassion of others by begging. Uh, they were allowed to go into the temple and to the synagogues occasionally, but they had to enter first, and then they had to wait for everyone to leave when it was time to go, and then they could leave. And so this was the life of the leper, so it's, it's, a, it's um, not unusual for them to be outside the city. And halfway through this verse, they said this. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And so the lepers have heard about Jesus. They call him Master or Rabbi. 
they've heard about his reputation for compassion, and they see him walking down the road. They say, now it's time to make our move. Now, they're not asking to be healed. They're simply asking for a handout. And say, here's Jesus. If we ask right, maybe we can get like a week's worth of lunches, or he can toss a few prayers uh, to God our way, or, or maybe he can set us a, up a, a place to stay for the evening. And so they cry in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And then verse 14, it says this. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. It seems like an odd request. We're just asking for a few dollars or a meal, and you're asking us to go show ourselves to the priest. But back in those days, the priest was the only one who could declare a person cured of disease, clean, and fit to re-enter society. So the ten lepers kind of pick up on this, and as they start going, it says, and as they went, they were cleansed. So they're walking through the city streets, they're raising their hand, clean, uh, I'm unclean, keep your distance, I'm unclean. And then one of the guys notices, wait a second, I'm not unclean anymore. And their skin is, is healed, and, um, phone distracted me, uh, their skin is healed, and uh, they, have, uh, they can feel in their hands and, and their feet and their toes again, and they get overjoyed with excitement. But now is where the story takes a different turn, it's in verse 15. Uh, one of them, when he saw he was healed, remember 10 got healed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a, here's the punchline, Samaritan. Dun, dun, dun. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Uh, were all, uh, where, where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And that's a, a PG term compared to what the Jews would have called a Samaritan. And then he said to him, rise and go your faith has made you well. Only one came back. And now it's easy for us to look down upon the other nine, is it not? Now those entitled people, those thankless, those ungrateful people. But if you put yourself in their shoes, it wasn't that easy of a decision. I mean, think about it. If you had that leprosy, maybe you contracted it uh, after you were married, so you haven't seen your wife for 10, 15, 30, 40 years. Uh, maybe you had children before you contracted the disease, so you, you, you saw them when they were two or three but haven't been able to hug them or tickle them or, or watch them grow up. Maybe you've never even met your grandkids. Uh, you haven't been able to hold a steady job ever in your entire life since you had leprosy. You haven't been able to eat in a restaurant. And so now your life has been handed back to you. Would we all actually go and rush back to Jesus and say thank you? I mean, life has been given back to us. There's stuff to do. We can, we can go hug our wives. We can go meet our children. We can go have a party in a restaurant with all of our friends. We can go to the unemployment line and get a job and move our stuff back into the old house. There's stuff to do. And so the nine take that route, and only one comes back. And so what separates the one from the other nine? And as I, as I meditated over this and prayed over this, I think that it has to do uh, with perspective. And what I mean is, is, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Acts, uh, you figure out really quick that um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Levites, the religious elite, the Jews of Jesus' day are consistently portrayed as thankless and ungrateful and entitled, while those on the fringes of society, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those that are in poverty, the down and out, even those that aren't a part of the Jewish race, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, they're always portrayed as thankful or grateful, as not entitled. They, they get it. And you see this time and time again uh, in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is beginning his ministry right after the, um, um, the uh, Beatitudes, and he's walking along, and he comes in contact with these two bad dudes. They're demon-possessed. 
No one can even go near the hill, near the hill where they live, um, and even chains can't hold them. So Jesus comes in contact with them, and, and the, the demons become angry and start talking to Jesus, and Jesus performs a miracle and casts the demons out of these two men, gives them their lives back, and the demons go into a herd of the pigs, and these pigs decide to go cliff diving. They jump off a cliff. They, they die in the ocean. And what's the town's response to Jesus? They come out, and they say, okay, forget about that miracle. Dude, those are our pigs. That's money in my pocket. And so they have this council, and they kick Jesus out of town. Or later in Jesus' ministry, he comes in contact with another sick guy. And it happens to be on the Sabbath, and the guy says, can you heal me? And Jesus says, yes, your faith has healed you. And what do the Pharisees and the scribes that are hanging around him say? They say, you know, that was pretty cool, but according to this, that's against the rules. So we can't give you that one. And you see this time and time again. It's as if the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews of that day had this sort of spiritual amnesia. They forget about the thousands of years of God's faithfulness to them or how they picked, how God picked uh, the Israelites uh, above every other nation in the whole entire world. He picked Abraham to shower his blessings on and to perform miracles for. And it's like the, the wonder, the mystery, the awe is gone. The face of God, the hand of God, the presence of God has become commonplace and they're numb to it. But when you come to those who are down and out, those who are in poverty, those, th- those who haven't yet tasted and seen the presence of this amazing God, they get it. They're filled with thankfulness. They're filled with worship. This, this move of God is not so commonplace. And you see this time and time again. Jesus tells a parable. A man's traveling down a road, um, and he gets mugged and beaten to within an inch of his life. Uh, all of his property is taken from him, and he's lying there, almost dead on the side of the road. And then a priest comes by and sees that man. What does he do? He crosses to the other side so he doesn't have to deal with it and keeps on walking. And then a Levi, one of the spiritual elites again, sees that man. He crosses to the other side and keeps on walking. He wants nothing to do with it. But who comes to their aid? The Samaritan. And the priest and the Levi, they forget that, that their forefathers knew very well what this man was experiencing. They, they were in slavery in Egypt. They knew what it was like to be beaten, to have their property stolen from them, but they forget this. Or in a few chapters in Luke, we see um, Jesus, uh, the very people that Jesus came to save, the Jews, have uh, given them these false trials, and they're executing them like a common criminal, and he's hanging upon a cross, and as the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders standing there, they're mocking him, they're spitting at him, they're making fun of him. Who gets it? It's the thief on the cross. He sees this Jesus responds with forgiveness and with patience. And he says, when you, when you go to your kingdom, can you remember me? And Jesus says, you get it. Yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. And now it's the Samaritan. It's the one who's, who's a, accustomed to being beaten, to being mocked, to being hated because of his ethnicity. And here's a Jew, the very person who hates him, and yet he heals them. This must be the Son of God. And so the wonder's there. The awe is there, and he's filled with worship and filled with gratefulness, and that overflows into action so that he throws himself at Jesus' feet and worships and says, thank you. Now, um, that's a great story. That's a really good parable, but it might fall a little flat for some of us. I want to go out on a limb here and assume uh, not many of us have been miraculously healed of leprosy. Anyone? No? Awesome. You, you should write a book if you have. Um, and so this, this might fall a little flat, and, and in fact it should. If you read this parable, and all throughout the Gospels, whenever Jesus performs a miracle in the Gospels, it's always physical, and it's always pointing to a greater spiritual reality for us Christians. I mean, look at what the, the man who was cleansed of leprosy actually received. He received a few more years of this clean and healthy body, but that body would eventually die in a few more years. 
So he didn't get that much. You got a clean bill of health to live a few more normal years of life. But as you flip throughout the New Testament, this theme is unpacked more and more and more of thankfulness and gratefulness. And it always points to, as Christians, as Christ followers, we have um, all this uh, stuff that's eternal. We should be eternally more thankful than the leper. So um, as I was prepping for this, I tried to think of the most thankless, um, ungrateful, entitled people in the whole Bible, and the Corinthians immediately jumped in mind. Um, you ever read 1 Corinthians? No? Uh, you should read it today. It's awesome. It's like 16 chapters. You can read it in 20, 30 minutes. These people are uh, dysfunctional, crazy, crazy church. Uh, if you read through the chapters, you'll see um, immediately there's divisions in the church, um, and then uh, there's immorality in the next few chapters, and not just like uh, gossip or lust or stuff. There's a dude sleeping with his stepmom, and the church isn't even ashamed of it. There's a group of guys that are like, you're the man, and they brag about it. Uh, as you go more, there's lawsuits among believers. Um, there's going to see prostitutes. There's marriages that are collapsing. There's anger at the apostles. Um, back in those times, communion wasn't just the grape juice and a little cracker. It was a feast with real wine. And so apparently in the Corinthian church, there was a group of people that would arrive early, and they'd drink all the wine. And they'd get drunk as a skunk, and then they would get the munchies, and they'd eat all the food before anybody else got there. Um, and then they had people that were um, showing off their spiritual gifts, uh, speaking in tongues, prophecy, preaching, singing, all this stuff. And so it's like if, if uh, Chris up here is leading worship, and I'm sitting in the audience, and I'm like, Chris, you're not hitting those notes uh, the way that I want you to. So I get up on stage and push them out of the way, and I'm like, I got this. Or interrupting Mike on a weekly basis, just saying, I got a better sermon in my pocket, so let me do this now. Uh, that was happening. Um, there's selfishness, there's fighting, there's ungratefulness, there's just dysfunction. Maybe not too unlike some of your Thanksgivings this Thursday. Um, <coughs> and so Paul addresses every single one of these issues. Uh, they've been writing to him, he writes back to them, he addresses these, is these issues. And if you, you follow the flow of thought through this whole book, uh, it seems like uh, chapter 15 is the climax or the crescendo of this whole letter. This is Paul's Trump argument. Everything he's said up until this point is leading up to chapter 15, and what he says in chapter 15, it seems, is going to trump all of their decisions. It's going to reorient their perspective. It's going to change um, all of their, their sinful habits. What's in chapter 15? Now, if you were Paul, uh, what would you speak about? Maybe point to the character of Jesus, who did not consider others better than themselves, who was humble, or, or maybe um, use your gifts for the good of others and not just for yourselves, or don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Um, that's not what Paul chooses to talk about. In fact, he spends 58 verses talking about the resurrection of the dead. What? The resurrection of the dead. Not just Jesus, but the resurrection of Christians after they die and Christ comes back, the resurrection of these bodies. Um, so he spends 58 verses talking about it, and it kind of makes no sense, but as you read it a second, a third, a fourth time, it begins to make sense. And, and what Paul is doing here is he, he's unpacking what's in store for Christians. He's unpacking, yes, you have sins forgiven, awesome. Yes, Jesus died for your sins, awesome. Yes, you have a relationship with God, but... There's so much more that you're not even thinking about. Eternity awaits where all of your dreams are going to come true for all of eternity. And so um, we're not going to read too many verses, but as you follow the flow of Paul's thought, uh, the first thing he does is he says uh, in the first part of the chapter, this is the gospel which I proclaim to you, which if you believe you're saved, uh, Jesus died, so your sins have been paid for. Your sins are forgiven. When you come out of your, uh, of your mom's womb, the, the first breath you take on this earth, the fair thing, the just thing, if you were to die, is to spend eternity in hell separated from God. Because you were a rebel, you are born a treasonous rebel to God's throne, you deserve punishment, but Jesus paid that debt for you. Now you have debt paid in full, uh, sins forgiven, not guilty anymore. Not only that, Jesus died, but he was buried. 
So your sins have absolutely been paid for. He wasn't having a fainting fit. He really paid for your sins. But then he goes on. He says, Jesus died. He was buried. And on the third day, according to Scripture, he was raised from the dead. And then he goes to extremes to prove this. He says it's according to Scripture that this happened. But also, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to 500 people at one time. And guess what? These people are still alive. So you can go and ask them. They're going to back me up on this. And he goes to extremes to prove this. And what Paul is saying here is, is the gospel is not just Jesus died for your sins and was buried. That's not it. But Jesus was also raised from the dead. And that's important. You can't take the resurrection away from the gospel. And as we get uh, further on in the chapter, he lists reasons why. He says, um, if the dead aren't raised, which is what the Corinthians believe, if the dead aren't raised, then Jesus isn't raised. And if Jesus isn't raised, he's not who he said he was. He's not the Savior of the world. And if that's the truth, then what we've been preaching is in vain. It's lies. We as apostles and pastors and preachers have been spreading gossip and malicious lies about the character of God. And if that's the case, then your faith is in vain, your whole religion is in vain. And if Christ is not raised, then there is no afterlife. Then Christians will not raise from the dead at all, either. But if Christ is raised, and he is, you can go ask those 500 people, then your faith is not in vain. We've been preaching the truth, and get this. Uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so also you will be raised from the dead. There is an afterlife. There's, there's more than meets the eye to this life. And halfway through the chapter, he gives the Corinthians kind of an ultimatum. He says, listen, we have two options when it comes to living this life. Either Christ is not raised, and this life is all there is, and if that's the case, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Christ is not raised, if this life is all that there is, then you have an obligation to, to suck every ounce of fun and happiness and adventure from this life as possible. It's time to live it up, to drink it up, right? What comes before part B? Part A! No? That was cheesy? Okay. I saw it on Nickelodeon. Figured I'd squeeze it in. Uh, <laughs> but it's time to party. It's time to live it up. Uh, that's your moral obligation to do that. But if Christ is raised and eternity awaits you, and everything you could ever hope for or dream for is but moments away in the scale of eternity, then that affects the way that we live our lives. If this life is not all there is, then all that pleasure that we want to suck out of this life, all this happiness and joy we want right now in this life, like the one leper, we can say, that can wait. That can wait. But even this may fall short for some of us. Um, I know we have a a large population of, of Catholics or former Catholics. Some of you go to Mass on, on Saturday and come here on Sunday. That's cool. Keep doing that. Um, but uh, the Catholics have, uh, they're not extremely excited to rush into eternity. And the reason is because they have this thing called purgatory, which isn't exactly in the Bible anywhere, um, but that's okay. Uh, but purgatory, you're not super excited to rush into eternity because you, you got to spend, I don't know, six, six hundred, six thousand years there. And it's not bad, but it's not good, but you're not like enthralled to get there. And even for uh, those of us that were raised Protestant, uh, we, we've, we've heard these stories growing up, streets of gold and mansion and all these crowns and eternally playing harps. And, and that doesn't really excite us and motivate us to get into eternity. Um, but if you read the end of the Bible, um, that's not the case. Like if you read uh, Revelation, and we're getting into end time stuff, right? So we're getting a little tricky. Um, I, millennial views, tribulation, I have no idea. Um, but if you read Revelation, you see that um, John uh, was describing as best he could the scene that he called heaven and mansions and streets of gold. That, that's the best words that were available to him, but heaven will be eternally greater than that. Um, in fact, um, like I don't know about you, but I dreaded heaven growing up. 
Because I thought streets of gold, that's cool, but they get potholes. Who's going to fix that? I don't want to be doing that in heaven. Or, or mansions, that's awesome. My mom makes me clean the house once a week. Who's going to clean that mansion when we get there? And you can't call up Molly Maid service. And eternally playing the harp um, does not exactly enthrall me. So, um, but if you read the end, that, that's not what heaven's going to be like at all. In fact, if you read Revelation, um, you'll see that the one thing that we're waiting for as Christians to happen is for Christ to return. And that may seem uh, impossible, a miracle, but he's the one that was raised from the dead, so it's pretty easy for him to come back. And he's going to come back, and there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, and there's going to be this great judgment where he separates the unrighteous from the righteous. Not those that, that didn't live perfectly and those that live perfectly, but those that trust in Jesus and those that don't. And those that wanted nothing to do with Jesus in this life will have nothing to do with him in the life to come. They go to an everlasting place called hell. And those that are righteous get to witness this cool thing. But, but before that is the resurrection of the dead. And, and Paul actually explains what that's like. And in verse 35, he goes into it. What, what are these bodies going to be like? And Paul explains that, um, you know how you take a grain of wheat and you plant it in the ground and this little gray seed goes into the ground and it goes and it dies. And, and the plant that, that is grows from that. It looks nothing like that little seed. It provides nourishment. It's green. It's tall. And that's what our bodies are compared to our eternal bodies we're going to receive. So this body's going to go into the ground, and it's going to die, but the body that's going to be raised from the dead will be eternally greater and look nothing like this body. Now some of you are getting excited, okay? Some of you are getting excited. Go to eternity. And the reason uh, that we're, we're going to have these bodies is because we absolutely need them, because after the judgment, we're going to witness this cool thing. Jesus is going to do away with the old heaven, and he's going to do away with the old earth, and he's going to create a new heaven that's bigger and better, and he's going to create a new, bigger, and better earth, and that's where you and I as Christ followers will live on this new earth. And we won't simply be singing hymns and worshiping the whole time. We have these bodies. We will be creating culture. We'll be uh, creating art. We'll be writing books. We'll be writing music. We'll be playing sports. We'll be exploring mountains. And as if this isn't enough, guess who's moving into the neighborhood? God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is leaving heaven. He's going to dwell amongst us. And that is good news, uh, that God is your neighbor. That's awesome news because that's the very person you were created to be in a relationship with. And that means everything you could ever hope for, long for, desire, or dream of will be yours forever for all of eternity in the presence of God. And heaven's this amazing thing. You get to create culture. You get to do all this stuff. And, and what happens in the presence of God is, is the first day of heaven, you, you wake up. I don't know if we sleep, but if you do, you wake up. And your capacity to hold joy and happiness and satisfaction is completely filled to the max, to the point of overflowing. And you go to sleep the next night, and your capacity to hold joy doubles. And you wake up, and you're filled to the point of overflowing with joy and satisfaction and contentment. You go to sleep, and your capacity doubles day after day after day after year after millennium after eon after eon forever. And it never, ever ends. And that's what's ours in Christ. All this is ours in Christ. Now, does this get us excited a little bit? Does this get us motivated a little bit? Should this not change the way that we live our lives? Uh, should that not, uh, for, does that not have implications on the way that we live? But I think that it should, um, and it should for me as well. But time after time after time, I find that I act just like the other night. And I'm a pastor, so that's not good. <laughs> you know, I, I sing about uh, sins forgiven, and I preach and I teach about uh, a new life in Christ and eternal life with him. And time after time after time, I say, sin's forgiven. Yeah, that's cool. Heaven, awesome. Have you seen that new mini iPad? Thing's awesome. 
It's like an iPad, but it's smaller. How'd they do that? <laughs> time after time, I get this spiritual amnesia. And uh, the things of this earth give me more wonder and joy and satisfaction. Uh, and, and the things of heaven kind of lose their, their glimmer and their shine, and I just forget it. And God kind of becomes commonplace. I remember a few months ago, um, this is a silly story. My wife told me not to tell I'm going to. Um, a few months ago, uh, w- me and Jenny are on a budget system, but we really wanted tacos. We love Taco Tuesday. Um, we decided to have it on Thursday, but we still called it Taco Tuesday. Big deal. Uh, and so we, uh, we go into our grocery fund, only a few bucks left, so we dip into our entertainment fund. That's for like red boxes and going out to eat and stuff. And so we get like a brand new thing of sour cream. We, get, we do homemade salsa, homemade guacamole. I hand make the tortillas. It's going to be a taco bar. It's going to be awesome. Um, and so we have a big feast that night. It's really, really good, but we have tons of leftovers. So we pack it all up into these two huge grocery bags, and we bring them to church for lunch on Friday. And uh, for some reason, Jenny and I get called to meetings where I aren't able to eat it. And so I'm driving home at like 5.30, and I remember, oh, no. At Hope, they clean out the fridges on Friday afternoon. And so I'm like, surely no one's going to throw all that stuff away. So I race back to the church, and I go into the fun zone fridge, and I open it up. Guess what? It's not there. That whole thing is sour cream. That's like four red boxes right there, gone. Someone threw it away. And I know who did it. It's Joe Bosco. It's Dinkle. Dinkle threw my taco away. (laughs) And so I take my phone out. And I start crafting this strongly worded email in all caps. I'm like yelling at him through this email. You don't take a man's talker. You have no common sense. All this stuff. I'm typing it, typing it. And I almost send it. And I stall. And I say, don't. I delete it. That's ridiculous. Sin's forgiven. Eternity in heaven. And yet a Friday night meal has this power to command my emotions and to work up so much frustration in my heart. How is that possible? Spiritual amnesia. I've forgotten. A lot of times when Jenny and I will have um, disagreements and uh, kind of cold to each other for a day or two, and so I'll do the Christian husband thing, get in the word and pray, and, you know, I want to lead her to the feet of Christ, and I, I want to love her sacrificially as Christ loves the church, and so uh, I'm, I call a meeting time where we're going to come to discuss, and my whole goal, my hope, uh, is just unity and love that we can just show people the gospel through the way that we love each other, and so we start the conversation about two minutes in, she says something that's wrong, and I know it's wrong. <laughs> And so uh, now my hope is not unity and love. It's I want to be right. And I, I want you to bow down to my rightness. I want to hear you say it out loud. I'm the rightest person you've ever known. <laughs> and it always ends badly. And it's little moments like that where heaven awaits. The fact that I have a wife who loves me, if you knew me, that's a miracle in and of itself. And I can't just be thankful for that. Like during the holidays, I got a three and a four-year-old, and I get frustrated because, God forbid, they act like a three and a (laughs) four-year-old. Heaven awaits. Eternity is mine. Where is your hope? I mean, do you have something to be thankful for when you get frustrated in those times, those little things, when when you're entitled, when you're thankless, when, when you lose that wonder and your awe, you're revealing where your hope really is. Is it really in eternity? Is it really in Jesus Christ? Is it really in his blessings? Or is it in this earth? Is this life all there is? I mean, listen to me. Try to hear this for the first time. Um, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way. Your sins are forgiven. And they weren't simply forgotten about or swept underneath the rug. They were paid for 
God's love is costly. Your sins are forgiven. Not only that, now you can have an intimate, daily, vibrant relationship with the creator of the universe on a daily basis, and you live on this side of the cross. So this whole Messiah thing, Savior thing, it's not a mystery anymore. Uh, you get to understand this Jesus thing. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, changing you into the character and likeness of Jesus Christ. You have the entire Bible at your disposal to lead and guide you. Eternity awaits where everything you've ever hoped for or dreamed for is yours, and abundance for all of eternity. And take all of that, and you didn't even ask for any of that. You were a rebel to God's throne. You were running away from him. And while you were in that process of running from him, he pursued you and he put Christians in your life and he wooed you into a church service so that you could hear the gospel and he brought you from death to life. So how then should we live? How much money are we going to take with us into eternity? None. How much money do you need to live comfortably here on earth? Go to Watotas, I'll show you, not much. Could that money be used as a powerful tool to bring other people into the kingdom? Yeah. Is it more powerful than maybe a new car or a new gadget? Probably. If this is the case, if every single person you meet on a daily basis, they're not just brothers and sisters and parents or, or machinists or janitors or chemists or doctors or, or uh, policemen, but they're eternal souls and they're either on their way to heaven or on their way to hell for all of eternity, and the only way they can do escape that punishment is by you articulating the gospel with words and sharing your story with them, does that not impact the way you use your conversation on a daily basis? Does that not affect the way that you talk to your family members and your coworkers? It should. You see, when we recognize and appreciate who Jesus is and what he's done for us, you can't help but just overflow in thankfulness. Now, the danger comes when you get that spiritual amnesia. You lose the wonder. You lose the awe. It just becomes commonplace. Um, say you were my friend, and uh, my dad passed away, God forbid, tomorrow, and I find out that he has a secretly rich, and I have a $2 billion inheritance. $2 billion inheritance. And so I need to go tomorrow to... Uh, Charlotte to a lawyer's office and to go pick it up. And so you hop in the back seat, Jenny's riding shotgun, we get in the van, we're pulling out $2 billion inheritance, I'm so excited. And now what would you think if when I pulled into the gas station and I looked at the gas price and said, $3.59, it was $3.39 yesterday. This is insane, they can't do that to us. You say, man, you can buy this gas station more, all right? Not a big deal. Or I say, hey Jenny, can you get, give me a snack? Um, kind of hungry for the road trip, so yeah. And so she comes back, cheer wine, awesome. She brings back regular Fritos. I'm like, you have no idea. Any southern person knows chili cheese Fritos goes with cheer wine. I get angry, I take this back. You say, dude, you can buy Frito-Lay tomorrow. It's not a big deal. And I'm on the way out of the gas station. There's a homeless guy. He says, you got any change, any spare change you can give me? And, and I got a 20, but I don't want to give him a 20. You know, maybe a few ones, maybe a five or a 10, and you notice that. You can buy that guy a house next week. Just give him the 20. Or we finally get to Charlotte, and it's kind of raining, and we're a mile away from the lawyer's office, and my car breaks down. And I just put it in park, and I just start cutting. My car is broken. I sit down beside my van. It's broken. What am I going to do? It's broken. Walk. You have a mile to go. A $2 billion inheritance. Quit being a baby. Get up and walk. But how many times is that us? 
We have a few short years in this thing that we call life here on earth. Eternity awaits much more than $2 billion inheritance, an eternal inheritance. And we're so frustrated and, and so dissatisfied because of little teeny tiny things. We've got a mile to go. If you hope in this life only, um, if this life is truly all that there is, if this is where your treasure is and the joys and satisfactions of this life, your thankfulness will always be low and changing with your circumstances. Uh, your dissatisfaction and your frustration will always be high and your acts of love that you want to do for your Savior, they'll always be tame. They'll always be guarded. You'll never want to take a risk. I love how Paul ends this in chapter 15. He says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, in view of all this, stand firm. <laughs> let nothing move you. Don't let anything take your affections and emotions and hope and treasure away from heaven. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. <laughs> this is the character of a Christ follower. You see, it's only the person that believes in eternity that's freed to take these risks we've been talking about in this series. Because they're filled with thankfulness and gratefulness, they know what's coming, they're free to take those risks. And, and here's the deal, if you go home uh, this afternoon and you want to work up your thankfulness and your gratefulness, you could read the Bible over and over, you could pray and just concentrate on the blessings of Christ, but you know where that thankfulness is going to come in full force? It's when you go out on a limb and, and say, God, uh, you know, I, I spoke wrongly to this relative during Thanksgiving and uh, I offended them and I shouldn't have said that and I'm going to go to them and try to share Jesus with them and ask for um, their forgiveness and it might not go right. If you don't show up, you have to show up, so please be with me. And you go to that person, you apologize and God shows up. Thankfulness, gratefulness. The courage to take more risks after that. Um, maybe you're not a believer here this morning. Uh, maybe you're not a Christ follower, and this sounds really bizarre, I know. <laughs> really bizarre. Eternity in heaven, new heaven, new earth, really, really bizarre. Um, you know, a giraffe's bizarre too. You ever seen that thing? Starfish? Those are bizarre. Um, and we wouldn't believe this either um, if it wasn't written in this book. Um, but it is, and we believe that God gave us this book. That's why our, our hope and our treasure is here. But if that's you, and, and you've come in contact with uh, a thankless ungrateful, entitled Christian, if you come in contact with me on a bad day, uh, I just want to apologize to you. Um, that, that's not the way that our Savior wants us to live, and please don't take our faults and our accidents and our momentary failures, don't take our reputation and force that on our God, because um, that's not our God. Uh, and for Christ follower or not Christ follower alike, here's the deal, um, the Father of Jesus loves you. <laughs> He's very, very fond of you. He not only loves you, but he likes you, not some future version of you, not you when you clean yourself up, but you right now. He loves you. And this isn't an exclusive thing. This is not, you have to be a card-carrying member of Christian to get all this, not Republican, Democrat, middle class, it doesn't matter. Um, God wants for all to, to come to a saving knowledge of him, and, and he would love nothing more than to spend eternity with you. And my hope and prayer is that the Christians in this room would begin to live like that. I'll help you out if you help me out. Um, that's my prayer. That if um, all is said and done, and I go to die and you show up at my funeral, whatever is said, Chase was a weird guy, kind of a dorky guy, but you know what? Um, like that one leper, he threw himself at the feet of Jesus. He let everything else wait, and his life was just one big thank you. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word. We praise you just for the truths that are in it. And God, we just confess, we are just prone to wander. <laughs> we are prone to leave the God that we love. We are prone to just become enchanted by these shiny objects here on this earth, like gadgets and comfort and safety and vacations and cars and relationships and acclaim and all that stuff. And none of that will ever satisfy us. So God, I pray in the coming hours, even the coming days, I pray, <laughs> I pray by uh, just a miracle that every single one of our idols would just completely and wholeheartedly disappoint us. <laughs> that we could just come face to face with just the lies and the shams that they are. And that you would take our, our eyes and, and force them to heaven. Uh, that's where our treasure would be. I pray that you would just raise up a, a generation of, of thankful people that haven't lost the wonder, that haven't lost the awe. That we could just tackle this triangle. <laughs> that's in your son's name we pray.